morning. I'm Jane Pauley, and this is Sunday Morning. This past Tuesday marked more than the birth of our country. It also marked the bicentennial of a bold venture that cleared the way west. What our forefathers built is a public works monument that's been celebrated ever since in words, art, even in song. Richard Schlesinger reports our cover story. The Erie Canal just turned 200 years old. It changed the face and the shape of the nation, and it's the subject of that song. Fifteen years on the Erie Canal, she's a good old Everybody who I told <laughs> I was doing this story immediately started singing that song. It's beloved. But inaccurate. Inaccurate. Later on Sunday morning, 15 miles and more on the Erie Canal. Low bridge, we must be getting near a town. Bellissima. It's not just the Italian word for beautiful. It's also the name of the sparkling wine Christy Brinkley really, really wants you to try. Mark Phillips has paid her a visit. I was watching an old Bellini movie. Nobody has to teach Christy Brinkley how to sell something. You can't even say Bellissima without... Bellissima, you know, just... Without wanting a drink. <laughs> Christy has good reason to be enthusiastic about this Italian Prosecco wine. She liked it so much, All natural. she bought the company, or part of it. Being bubbly about bubbly, coming up on Sunday morning. You can count on plenty of fast and furious action at the sporting event our Luke Burbank will be taking us to. P.J. Ball is just your average everyday 12-year-old. With one exception. Okay, let's have a race. Okay. I can't believe I just said that to you. Okay, uh, I'll actually do it twice. This is not even going to be close, is I, it? I know. Yeah, it's not going to be. He's a world-class athlete in a sport you probably haven't heard of. Let's go! It's called sport stacking, and will take you to its Super Bowl ahead on Sunday morning. We take note this morning of singer-songwriter Jack Antonoff, a composer of hits who's never forgotten where he came from. After all, as Tracy Smith will be showing us, it hasn't been that long since he left. If you're Jack Antonoff has three Grammys, a very famous girlfriend, and writing credits on some of the most popular songs in music today. And until fairly recently, he lived at home, with his mom and dad. You didn't leave until you were? 29. And at that point, I mean, I had like, had number one records at that point. I hate that you know me so well. We'll help you get to know Jack later on Sunday morning. Moraga surveys the field of manscaping. Martha Teichner talks books and baking with mystery writer Louise Penny. Faith Saley turns up the heat on the political put-down snowflake and more. Ahead, Westward Ho. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. The way west became a lot easier for Americans thanks to a canal they started to build 200 years ago this past Tuesday. So much easier that people are still singing its praises. Our Sunday morning cover story is reported by Richard Schlesinger. 
Even though the Erie Canal quite literally helped shape this nation, this is what so many people think of first when the canal comes up in conversation. I've got an old mule and her name is Sal. Fifteen years on the Erie Canal, she's But except for the fact that mules did indeed drag boats along the Erie Canal, from Albany to Buffalo. Even singer and historian Dave Ruck will tell you the song actually has very little to do with it. Is there any evidence that it was ever actually sung on the Erie Canal, except for situations like this? Turns out it's a 20th century song. It's actually written by a professional songwriter who was from, of all places, Massachusetts. So this man, Thomas S. Allen, he comes to Rochester, New York around 1910, sees the canal for the first time, hears the phrase, low bridge. Low bridge, everybody down. Low. And he ends up composing the song. It's the only canal song he wrote. So he wasn't a canalman? Not only was he not a canalman, but no one ever sang the song on the, at least on the 19th century canal. The canal, which turned 200 years old last Tuesday, was championed by a man who was as stubborn as a mule. DeWitt Clinton, mayor of New York City, who became governor of the state. He spent 10 years fighting to sell this project to a deeply skeptical public. It was hard. It was not an easy sell. These landowners that are listed. Brad Utter is an historian at the New York State Museum. Presidents Jefferson and Madison refused to help fund the canal, so Clinton had to raise the $7 million needed to build it. Some people thought it was a great idea, but... But not with my money. You're a little crazy because you're trying to go through swamps and virgin forest and there's no labor, there's no machinery to do that kind of thing. This is all new. It was a gargantuan undertaking for a nation just 41 years old. The canal would be dug by hand, every inch of it, for 363 miles. It would be 40 feet wide and 4 feet deep. 83 locks would have to be built. But Clinton kept at it, financed the project with some state money and by selling bonds, and construction began July 4, 1817. It was completed in just eight years. On time, in, in advance, and under budget. Really? <laughs> yes. If only. Yeah. <laughs> if only we could do that. It's many miles to Buffalo. Oh, that low bridge. A trip that could have taken six weeks before the canal now took less than one week and cost one-tenth of an overland trip. So as soon as it opened, the canal was overwhelmed with traffic and it paid for itself with tolls in just 10 years. Over 100 years old. John McKee operates the locks in Lockport, New York. Sometimes there was a day or two wait just to get through the locks. Boats would be packed up on both sides of the, the banks right here. And of course, while they were lined up waiting to go through, they would spend their time and money in town here and that to added to the population here in Lockport. Population grew in towns all along the canal. Rochester, New York Mayor Lovely Warren traces the beginnings of her city 
to the canal. The Erie Canal was the foundation of Rochester. It was the foundation of our industry. And we were a flour mill city, and that's the way that Rochester first started to build itself up. Population started to grow once the Erie Canal came into fruition. But the canal also accelerated the western expansion of the nation. People and commerce were able to reach and develop what would become the American Midwest. A region that was isolated and landlocked was now connected via the canal and the Hudson River down to New York City and the world. Within a year or two, there were already calls of, hey, let's make it bigger. And they did. By 1862, the canal was almost twice as wide and twice as deep. People and goods and ideas flowed 24 hours a day in both directions. The impact that the internet has had on our culture and our society is very similar to the impact that the canal had. Sharing ideas, making things faster. The canal was used to bring slaves to freedom. And part of the Underground Railroad. Part of the Underground Railroad. Frederick Douglass would bring slaves here and actually lead them to freedom. The first women's rights convention was held in Seneca Falls, a canal town. And Joseph Smith started the Mormon religion in Palmyra, along the shores of the canal. But the progress and prosperity was not shared by all. The canal was dug right through traditional Native American land, displacing many who lived there to make way for the commerce that grew steadily for decades until the next great advance, railroads. The iron horse was there. The railroad was there to compete. And the canal was more efficient. You could pull more with less energy and it's cheaper, but the railroad was fast. The railroad took passenger traffic first, leaving the canal boats to haul mostly freight. But by the 1950s, most of the freight traffic was gone too. Let the boats pass the next one. Today, most of the boats John McKee puts through the locks are pleasure craft. The gates are opened by motors that are a century old. McKee and most everyone who works on the canal system feels the history of what in its early days was derided as Clinton's ditch. Josh Pagan keeps digging today to keep the canal deep enough. I realized that I worked at a museum that stretched from the Hudson River to the Niagara River in Buffalo and connected us to Lake Ontario. The value of the canal cannot be measured anymore in tons of freight or numbers of passengers that it moves. But it is hard not to be moved by the canal itself and the achievement two centuries ago of just getting it dug. What it represents, I think, is American ingenuity and American spirit. And so the fact that we still have this canal here today I think it should be celebrated as long as we can keep it here. As you go through life, make this your goal. Watch the donut, not the hole. Next, how the donut got its name.
When you walk the streets, you'll have no cares If you walk the lines and not the squares As you go through life, make this your goal Watch the donut, not the hole And now a page from our Sunday Morning Almanac July 9th, 1872 145 years ago today The day John F. Blondell of the state of Maine Won a patent for his spring-loaded donut cutter a much neater way of trimming the dough and punching out that hole. It ought to be noted that it was 19th century sea captain Hanson Gregory who is widely credited with having created the hole, which replaced the nut, often a walnut, that was traditionally found in the center of the dough, which of course explains the name doughnut. Anyway, over the years, the doughnut has earned a special place in American hearts as well as stomachs. The Salvation Army served countless donuts to American troops during the First World War. And donut handouts helped sustain an army of unemployed Americans during the Great Depression. Come on, come on, sit down. Donut dexterity even played a role in the Oscar-winning 1934 film It Happened One Night with Clark Gable and Claudette Colbert. Say, where'd you learn to dunk, in finishing school? Oh, now, don't you start telling me I shouldn't dunk. Of course you shouldn't. You don't know how to do it. Dunking's an art. Well, let it soak so long. A dip and frock in your mouth. You gotta hang there too long and get soft and fall off. It's all a matter of timing. Donuts today come in a wide variety of shapes and colors and flavors and textures. Still, the one kind of donut no one has been able to invent is one that's truly low-calorie and low-fat. Deep-fried, by definition, that may be the hardest nut of all to crack. How do these champions stack up? Find out just ahead. This is one way to use a cup. Luke Burbank shows us another. You do like do Pokemon or any of that kind of stuff? PJ Ball is a gifted athlete. He's just 12 years old, but his talent hasn't gone unnoticed. He's been interviewed on national TV. His Instagram page is a hit. And he's got more hardware to dangle around his neck than Mr. T. But you won't find PJ on the football field or the baseball diamond. You'll find him right here, standing behind a table and a stack of cups. A stack he can put up and take down with such alarming speed that we feel the need to assure you this clip yep. has not been sped up. Welcome to the world of sports stacking. The goal is to stack the cups in specific formations and take them down as fast as humanly possible without knocking them over. Yeah! Okay, so uh, can I start with either side? Does it doesn't matter where I start. I have to make the three pyramids and break the three pyramids down. Yeah, but you, you actually can't touch two stacks at the same time oh. and you can't start in the middle. Okay, okay. Okay, got it. So three, just, yeah. two, one, go. We heard about it on YouTube. So Natasha Ball is PJ's mom. So PJ watched it on YouTube. 
said, I want to try these. And I was like, oh my goodness, this is so cool. You asked your parents for some cups? Yeah, and I, I got it for Christmas. Were you using some other kind of stuff before you got the official stuff? Um, yeah, I was using just like the little bathroom spit cups and they worked horrible. And then what was it like when you got the real cups? It was amazing. I was like, wow. <laughs> I, I didn't know that cups could actually work, work this good. The sport started at a California boys and girls club back in 1981 where kids were stacking Dixie Cups for fun. Within a decade, though, the sport had formalized, spreading to schools in 37 states. It was even featured on The Tonight Show in 1990. Okay. You do that really fast. <laughs> Today, more than 8 million kids participate in sport stacking all over the country. By the end of the lesson, you're Phys ed teachers love it because it's that rare sport that anyone can play. Ready, set, go. Even those who may not be as athletically inclined. Well, this is um, RRV. For PJ and, and his family, the sport right has been life-changing. In fact, legs. sport stacking has sort of become a family business. Yeah, we have the RV, we go into schools, we go into churches, we go into community groups. This is a pretty big change in your life as a family. PJ's parents sold their house in Florida and now travel the country teaching the sport, while PJ competes in various tournaments. Some of the same tournaments Jordan Green of Highlands Ranch, Colorado is training for. I think it was like 2012 nationals and they all of a sudden started giving awards to girls and I started like getting awards. So I was like, wow, I can do this. And she has. In fact, she got so good at stacking that she quit playing soccer, baseball and football to pursue this sport full time. Now she's the fastest female stacker in Colorado. And it's not just about the trophies. Studies have shown that it helps with like math, reading, science, like all your like almost focus in school. So that has helped me a lot, like be able to get better grades because I can focus and do well and understand a little bit more. You want to be a sign language interpreter? Yeah, I really like that idea <laughs> because it's um, I get to use my hands still and you move my fingers. So like most sports stackers, Jordan and PJ keep track of their competitors and their teammates via YouTube and social media. But it's when they all converge in one place that the cups really start to fly. The Junior Olympics in Houston, yes, this is a Junior Olympic sport, was a chance for sports stackers of every age and size from around the world to see just how fast they could go. Are you going to be okay if you guys don't manage to win? Um, yeah. Um, like. We, we just know that we tried our best, and that's pretty much all that matters. Okay, good luck out there. And it gave them a chance to prove to any doubters out there that stacking isn't just a quirky hobby, but a real sport, one that belongs in the same sentence as soccer or swimming. I've heard of some people that they've gotten bullied for it just because they'll say like, oh, that's not a sport or that's really dumb. But my friends have been super supportive. They all are like, wow, that's so cool. When's your next tournament or how'd you do? In Houston, both PJ and Jordan won more medals to add to their collections, with Jordan setting a massive personal best along the way. In just a couple of years, Jordan will be off to college, but that doesn't mean an end to her stacking interests. How long do you think you're going to do this? 
Um, probably forever. There's a saying that's like in the community, once a stacker, always a stacker. Meanwhile, PJ sees a possible expiration date on his stacking career. Do you think you're going to keep doing this for a long time? Um, probably until I'm about maybe 16 or, or 17, and then I'll probably be into college and I'll have some other stuff like an, like a job or maybe a wife or something. So Yeah, I'm married and wives really cut into cup stacking time. <laughs>
wall to wall. Born in 1984, Jack Antonoff grew up in the northern New Jersey suburbs with sisters Rachel and Sarah. He fell in love with music as a kid and, with a few friends, formed a band. The first show I ever played was 12, 16, 98. The reminders of his early gigs are still written on the closet door of his childhood bedroom. So the first time I ever got paid to play was one eighteen ninety nine Fire Hall in Bordentown, New Jersey. Played first on the bill and got paid $20. We got paid $20, yeah, the whole band. the whole band. Music became an escape. For most of his early life, Jack watched his younger sister Sarah battle brain cancer. And when he told his parents, Rick and Shira, he wanted to tour with his band, they didn't stand in his way. I mean, there was much of the time that I was deeply involved taking care of a sick kid. But... You also just gain perspective on what's really important. So when Jack was a senior and said, I got my first record deal and I really want to go out on the road, I don't want to go to college. And we went, go. Jack was only 18 when Sarah died. But you can still hear his anguish in his work, like Everybody Lost Somebody from his just-released new album. Everybody Lost Somebody, something, there's this weight of loss, and we keep going. And that's what is incredible about human beings, is the choice to keep going. You chose to keep keep going. Yeah, I did. And and that's not something I feel bad about. Everybody has this sack they're carrying. Some are heavier, some are lighter, but no one doesn't have it. And if you think someone doesn't have it, they have a bigger one than you imagined. Somebody broke me once, love was a currency. It's not all darkness. Don't Take the Money was inspired by the love of Jack's life. In the video, he's an imaginary groom at an imaginary wedding. It was filmed at the real Los Angeles home he shares with his real-life girlfriend, actor and director Lena Dunham. You might recognize her as the star of HBO's hit comedy, Girls. But I think that I may be the voice of my generation. Or at least a voice of a generation. And action. On this day, she was Jack's director. How does Jack take direction? I will say that Jack is his own man and that he, it's not, uh, none of my previous directing accolades are meaningful in this situation. We have jokingly been calling him the hitman. That's what we've been calling this piece. Yeah. Because he is. A lot of women love to work with him because he's one of the few guys in the entertainment industry who comes in with no agenda, no sleaze, and he's there to just make art. And I think people feel that and they feel safe with him. And so I'm very proud to be able to call someone like that my partner. I'm a little much for In fact, he's become a sort of musical Midas. His recent collaboration with singer-songwriter Lord helped cement him as one of the most sought-after producers in the business. But he's never too big to come home. When a triple Grammy winner gets a splinter, there's no one better than mom to pull it out. Believe it or not, until fairly recently, Jack lived here full-time. I think that's why it was also very hard to leave this house. You didn't leave until you were... 29? And at that point, I mean, I had, like, had number one records at that point. His boyhood bedroom, a sanctuary where he wrote many of his songs, is nearly intact. Except that now he's yanked most of it out of his parents' house and reassembled it piece by piece in a trailer to take with him on tour. But if you come in, this is literally my room. 
This is the exact carpet. These are my drawers. Like. That is so cool. These are, this is what was in my drawers. And this is where you would initially write songs? Yeah, I'd write and record in here forever. This is like all my stuff. Like that's my underwear, underwear drawer. drawer. Yeah, you know, like it's <laughs> all <we> here. <laughs> Even taking the underwear drawer. Well, the whole, the, the concept was nothing changes. Just His fans may have heard about Jack Antonoff's in inner sanctum. Exactly now in here, they can like, stand in it. God, this is weird. <laughs> <laughs> For the record, mom was fine with all this. She just has one small request. The only thing I've ever said, and this is the truth, Jack, is I really want a grandbaby someday. I do. I would be very disappointed. But, you know, that's it, Jack. But has, do have you ever felt that in any of... No, no. Can we cut that? Can we, can we do that? <laughs> Don't I would, cut that. I leave would the part really like a girl. No, please, that's really bad. No, leave all of it. Kidding aside, mom is understandably proud. Jack Antonoff has found a way to turn personal pain into something awfully close to joy. If you're lucky enough to find anything in life that gives you five seconds, let alone an hour, of um, relief from life. You should try to do it forever. Ahead, we get letters. To the mailbag now. Comedian Jim Gaffigan's recent commentary on massage, which he called decadent and weird, provoked a number of responses, not least from Dolly Wallace, the president of the American Massage Therapy Association. AMTA and its members understand good-natured humor, she writes, but call on the media and public figures to not allow their comments to denigrate the massage therapy profession, which she says is focused on health and wellness. Among the individual therapists who wrote was Mary Mell, who suggested a starkly different form of therapy for Jim. To quote her, he should be horse-whipped. Rachel Kate Kopp disagrees. She writes, I've been a professional massage therapist for 15 years, and I thought it was funny. Simmer down, people. It's called comedy. Moving on, our viewer Shara Miller sent us this photo of the Sunday morning sun her father Stu painted on his backyard fence. My mom and him just love watching your show every Sunday morning, she writes. They usually DVR it and then show us their favorite parts from the week. Good point. You can always DVR our show if you can't actually watch it in real time. Which seems to be the right time to mention that whenever we run out of time for our regular features, such as our Sunday morning calendar, you can always find them and extras of all kinds on our website. Finally, we thank our viewer who pointed out that it was 20 years ago this past Tuesday, July 4th, that we lost Sunday morning's founding anchor, Charles Kuralt. Neither we on this side of the camera or you on yours would be where we are right now without him. And if something on our show either rubs you the wrong way or tickles your fancy, write us the old-fashioned way or send us an email, and we'll be right back. Ready, here we go, one, two, and three. Ahead, looking sharp.
Plenty of guys are interested in looking sharp, but not all will go to the lengths, the very short lengths, Moraka found some men are willing to go. Men, as the dog days of summer drag on, it may be time to start thinking about shedding some of that extra hair. Manscaping, as it's called, is no longer just for the 40-year-old virgin. Oh, God. You're a manscape architect. Pretty much, that's what I am. Stella Barba, an esthetician with the Barba Skin Clinic in Miami, says men are increasingly coming to her for laser body hair removal. It's either back hair, you know, the unibrow, and ear hair. And we're talking removal of hair everywhere. Once they get that comfort level with you, they are moving down to the buttocks. Okay, they're going yes, down, way below Downtown, that. yes. That's what they're doing. Marcel Martinez came to Stella for help with his back hair. Can you flip over for a second? I want to see your back. Now it's bare back there. Today he's here for maintenance work on his neck and chest. My laser is ready to go. And it's relatively painless. Right, Marcel? Not really. That's not true, Marcel. Okay, so we're actually going to start here on the neck, and I'm just going to do a little bit here. Um, ready? Here we go. One, two, and three. The laser zaps the hair and the follicles underneath. After a few treatments, most of it will never grow back. You're doing great. Fantastic. Is it hurting at all? It hurts. Does it sting? <laughs> That's why it does. It stings. Um, She's been kind today. And do you feel cleaner? Yes. But not everyone is sold on the smooth look. Okay, how hairy are you? We're pretty hairy. Can, another button. <laughs> One more. <laughs> Just go for it. You have a hairy husband. Yes, I do. <laughs> Would you like him to remove his body hair? Uh, no. I mean, you need like big clippers for that. <laughs> what do you think of the trend of all these men getting manscaped? Well, I think it's pretty much unsustainable. I mean, how much do you want to pretty much... It's bad enough you have to shave every so many days. I mean, to do your whole body for how long? Forever? Our obsession with body hair is nothing new. Cavemen were said to have removed body hair for hygiene. For the ancient Egyptians, hairlessness conferred class and status. The Greeks, on the other hand, viewed hairiness as a sign of masculinity. And back and forth, it's gone. For every Burt Reynolds, a Brad Pitt. I've got a lot of nice scented candles that I've been given as housewarming gifts. Right. Is that the same kind of wax that you're Definitely using? Definitely not. Um, our wax here is 100% natural beeswax. Danielle Zanfredino waxes enthusiastic about the benefits of hair removal. She's a waxing specialist at New York City's European Wax Center. The guys that are coming in, are they mostly coming in of their own volition or is it significant others that are saying, listen, you got to get a rid of that. A little bit of both. I've definitely seen some male guests come in here because maybe their wife or fiance has told them to come try it out. Their Case in point, our very own follicle fall guy, Joe Dooley. Have you always had a lot of chest hair? Well, I'm half Italian. You don't have back hair, though, which seems to be the big issue. Well, I'm only half Italian. First, we surveyed Joe's frontal thread count. Okay, yeah. and he's got these things, these like... Nipples. Yeah, they're almost like locks of hair. Yeah, it's, it's nice. Mm, not so much. 
and then it was time to stop yapping and start ripping. Wax on. It looks like grape jelly. And it feels like hot fudge. Wax off. Turn to the side. No, 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 no. My women are tough as nails, I can tell you that. We are. It's amazing. I have to say, if you walked out of here now, it would look terrible. It would look like you're wearing a hair brawl. A few more tears, and Joe was stripped clean. It looks like a new me, and I actually feel younger. Younger, more confident, cleaner. I'll say younger and cleaner. Yes. What do you think your wife will say when she sees you? She's probably going to say, why did you do it? And I'm going to say, for you, honey. And then we'll embrace, and then we'll see what <laughs> happens from there. We're done, right? Ahead, Court of Dreams. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. An Iowa farmer with a love for a faraway sport has built himself a backyard court of dreams. With Steve Hartman, we pay a visit. For as long as he can remember, Mark Kuhn has been riding a tractor at the family farm in Charles City, Iowa, which is why, as a kid, Whenever Mark wanted to see beyond the soybeans, he'd go to his grandpa's house, where the old man would take him on exotic adventures. He introduced me to his shortwave radio, and he took me all places all over the world. Labor chases his back, plays a beautiful backhand on the line. Including England, where one day they stumbled on a BBC broadcast of the championship's Wimbledon. For Mark, it was instantly game, set, match. What did you like about it? Well, the accent was neat. The accent? Yes, and, and we quickly got into the way the score. We didn't understand it. Why did it go to 15 and then 30 and then 40? You know, and love. It was the beginning of what became a lifelong obsession with Wimbledon. Of course, a lot of people like Wimbledon and grass court tennis. But what makes Mark outstanding in this field is what is now outstanding in his field. What was formerly a cattle feedlot is now the All-Iowa Lawn Tennis Club, a replica of Wimbledon's center court. It took Mark a year and a half to build it. Then he learned to maintain it during an internship with the Wimbledon ground staff. And that's all he wanted, just to grow and groom the grass. Which is why Mark was as surprised as anyone. When after he built it, they came. From around the world, they came to play on his court of dreams. These kids are from Iowa and Minnesota, here to compete in an invitational tournament. And that's umpire Baron Wittet, also from Minnesota. And when I found that there's a place in the middle of Iowa in a cornfield, it's like, get in the car, you know? So I came down as fast as I could. What happens when you build it and they do come? Well, they'll come from anywhere and everywhere, and they'll come at all times of the night. Does it make you wish you hadn't built it? Never. No. Great to have you play here. You're very welcome. Mark lets people play for free, with a reservation. And so far, tennis fans from 42 states and six countries have made the pilgrimage to this tennis heaven, here amongst the Iowa cornfields. There you go, in the middle, way to be. What would your grandpa think if he saw that? Oh, he'd be very pleased. I know he would. How could he not be? And certainly, if there are shortwave radios in heaven, you know he's listening. 
still to come. Christy Brinkley. <laughs> In a word, sparkling. Oh, yes. And later... President Snowflake. Don't ask a snowflake. The word is snowflake. It's Sunday morning on CBS, and here again is Jane Pauley. Uptown Girl was a big hit for Billy Joel and soon-to-be bride, Christy Brinkley, back in 1983. Fast forward to today, we find her front and center as a cheerleader for Bellissima, a sparkling wine, and a very hands-on cheerleader, as Mark Phillips discovered. Oh, I'm involved here. It's my new workout. No one will ever accuse Christy Brinkley of a lack of enthusiasm. Lately, she's been even more motivated. You can't even say bellissima without bellissima, you know, just... Without wanting a drink. Bellissima is her very own wine label, a range of Prosecco, the Italian fizz that's about the hottest thing in the liquor business right now. U.S. sales are up about a third each year lately. You are tasting nature, not chemicals. And Christy Brinkley and her partners think they found a way to break through the market clutter. Her. Of all the places I've pictured you, the loading dock wasn't one of them, I I have to say. Believe me, I'm involved in every aspect of this. (laughs) More than four decades into a modeling career, Christy Brinkley never met a camera lens she didn't like, and that didn't like her back. Point one at her, and this sort of thing happens. Cheers. Yes. Prosecco, long the pre-dinner tipple in Italy, is being marketed in the U.S. as a kind of champagne without the pretensions and without the price tag. More bubbles for the buck. Were you a Prosecco girl before you got involved in the Prosecco business? Oh, yeah, I've had my fair share. <laughs> in the Veneto region of Italy, about an hour north of Venice, where anything that calls itself Prosecco has to come from, they can't make enough of the stuff. It's really happening right now. Everybody wants Prosecco. If you're going to get into the wine business, this is the place. And this is where Christie has come. Can you tell? A decent bunch of grapes and any other bunch of grapes. Well, all our Bellissima grapes are gorgeous. Mmm, that one was. She's not only found a wine she likes, Christy Brinkley seems to have found the fountain of youth. Oh, yes. She's 63 years old now. I'll say that again. She's 63 years old, going on 23 by the look of her. You know, I have been around a long time. It has been 38 years since she became the nation's pinup girl, appearing on three consecutive Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue covers from 1979 to 81, the only time anybody's ever done that. I ended up loving this career, and I love the fact that every day is different, and, you know, no two days are alike. And her life has been like a timeline of the boomer generation, if a little more glamorous. 
Not everybody has a pop star husband in whose music video you can more or less play yourself. I have a theme song, <laughs> you know, wherever I go. <laughs> It's so funny because I walked into the U.S. Open with my son, and the second we sit down, Uptown Girl starts, and I said, oh my gosh, what a coincidence. And he goes, oh, Mom, I don't think it's a coincidence. Look up, and we're on the Jumbotron. Billy Joel was one of four husbands and four divorces. Too good, too bad, she says. There were three children along the way. It's been a life of mostly highs and some significant lows, from her family's beginnings in Michigan, to surfer girl California, to an art student's life in Paris, where she was discovered, in a post office, the legend goes. I never really wanted to be a model. That was never a dream of mine. And I was a little embarrassed, but I needed the money. <laughs> but my friends, you know, were, were kind of like, well, it's so bourgeois, you do, you know, do this, how can you do this, you know? And I was like, well, I can afford to take us all to uh, Greece. Okay? Uh, you know, and they're like, okay, <laughs> not bad. <laughs> Whenever she's been counted out, she's always seemed to bounce back. Never with a higher or perhaps more unlikely rebound than when she was asked to play Roxy Hart in the long-running musical Chicago. The reviews, like her marriages, were mixed, but it jump-started her career once again. I never felt like I retired. I always get a little bit insulted when I read former model, and I'm like, former? What do they think I've been doing all this time? I'm still here. I haven't gone anywhere. This is authentic skincare. Christy has used her fame in product promotion before. True results. There's the skincare line. With a nice stretch. And the gym line. Ah, oh, total gym. And in keeping with the always look your best theme, her fans may be pleased to know the new Prosecco range is organic and includes a sugar-free option. It's zero sugar. It's zero carbs. This is safe for, for people with diabetes, uh, for people on a diet. Cheers. What the world Cheers. needs, diet Prosecco. Diet Prosecco. Down the hatch. <laughs> and if anybody thinks Christy Brinkley's new line is a way of toasting the end of her career, toast again. If like people are hoping to get a bottle of my Prosecco, so like pop that cork and say, yay, she's retired, that's not going to happen right away. <laughs> You might be a snowflake if you drive a Prius. Coming up, this is the it insult that's caused a blizzard on the political landscape. Snowflakes in July. It's the political put-down of the moment. Snowflake. And to its fans, Faith Saley has one word of advice. Chill. Even though it's the middle of summer, there's an awful lot of talk about snowflakes. This is the it insult that's caused a blizzard on the political landscape. If you somehow haven't heard it, here's a taste. These protesters are typical snowflake millennials. Now he's President Snowflake, okay? Everything he said, oh, they're mean to me and they don't like me. If you want to know how the president is doing in his first hundred days, don't ask a snowflake. The dig, in its current use, stems from the 90s book and movie Fight Club, in which the narrator informs his listeners, You are not special. 
not a beautiful or unique snowflake. Some started calling today's youth Generation Snowflake, bemoaning their perceived hypersensitivity. And then Snowflake became a word weapon to express a broad kind of anti-intellectualism aimed at campuses and communities where cultural sensitivity is a must. Cut to the 2016 election when Snowflake emerges as the knee-jerk conservative jibe to shut down political opponents, especially during debates around tolerance. More recently, some liberals have taken up the snowball fight by calling out the current president for being a thin-skinned, self-perceived victim. His ego is so fragile. He's such a snowflake. Now seems a good time to melt this trend by saying, I'm a snowflake, and so are you. Your children are snowflakes, and so are mine. And those who protest the loudest about not being snowflakes, I can see your six-fold ice crystals from here. Because every person, empirically, is unique and special and flawed. And we are all, at times, fragile. Snowflakery is simply being human, which makes it a pretty flaky insult. Look, a bunch of snowflakes creates a storm, a white blanket that covers things so you can't get to what's underneath. So to those on the right and the left, enough with snowflake. It's not a cool insult. You're fragile and melty. No, you're fragile and melty is really just another way of saying, I know you are, but what am I? It's fitting that an insult largely aimed at youth has made children of those who use it. Snowflake reminds us how much we need climate change in politics. Up next. So what people would do is they would plant a cluster of three pine trees. Louise Penny takes us to the village of three pines. The loyalty of her millions of readers speaks volumes about the appeal of Louise Penny's mystery novels. Martha Teichner traveled to Penny's hometown to see for herself. Number 40, and there's a coupon here for some chocolates. There should be a name for fans of Louise Penny's murder mysteries. The L Pack, or the Penny Posse, maybe. There we go, got it. <laughs> to say they come from far and wide in large numbers to attend her book events is no exaggeration. So we have as close as Nolton, Quebec, and as far away as England. They've come all the way to the Canadian town of Knowlton in the eastern townships of Quebec, where Penny lives and her books are set. Many of you have come a great distance with me, so I am thrilled to meet each and every one of you. Thank you. It's as if her readers want to immerse themselves in the setting of her books, which are as much about the backstories of her murders, why people kill, as who done it. Penny has published 12. They now routinely debut at number one on the New York Times bestseller list, or close to it. Her next, Glass Houses, comes out next month. My books are about many, many things, probably least of all murder. They're about life, they're about choices, and taking responsibility for what you do. But really, I think at their heart, they're about love and friendship. And food. Her characters all eat exceptionally well in the made-up village of Three Pines, which Penny, tongue-in-cheek, informs readers can't be found on any map 
although her publisher has conveniently had one drawn. Three Pines is meant to be a refuge, a refuge, a sanctuary found by people who were lost. The name has historical significance. Legend has it, during the American Revolution, the trees were a signpost for loyalists to the British crown fleeing north to Canada to safety. So what people would do is they would plant a cluster of three pine trees as a signal to these people that they were safe. And that's how I got the name for the village. Her detective is Chief Inspector Armand Gamache. If I got lucky enough that the books were published and became a series, I didn't want to grow weary of my main character. So I decided I would create a man I would marry. But before Penny herself managed to find Three Pines and all its inhabitants, she too was lost. I was drinking more and more and more. The phone never rang. The doorbell never sounded. She had it made, or so it seemed. From the age of 21, she was a reporter and then an anchor for CBC Radio, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. But she was also a secret drunk. At 35, she walked into an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting and changed her life. I left that meeting never having to drink again. It was... Unbelievable. You did not need to drink anymore. No, I didn't. The, the urge to drink, the, the need to drink, disappeared. Not long afterward, she met and married Dr. Michael Whitehead, a noted pediatric hematologist more than 20 years her senior, who told her that he would support her if she quit her job to write. For five years, she tried to write the great historical novel. But then? Then I looked on the bedside table. Very well represented there were crime novels. And it was one of those moments where I just thought, oh, maybe that's what I should write. That first book was called Still Life. Quebec is a character, a very real character in the books. There is a very keen sense of place. With each new book, Penny's following has grown, her fans seeking a piece of her fictional and real worlds, the line between them often blurry. Oh, I can hear that they're nice and crispy. Readers are convinced Kelly Shanahan's bakery is the bakery in the books. People come in absolutely expecting that Louise Penny is here somewhere. And on this particular day, a Louise Penny sighting does indeed occur. The local bookstore has become a stand-in for Myrna's new and used bookstore in the novels. We usually have at least three groups a day, not counting the bus tours and things bus like that. Bus tours? <laughs> really? We've started getting bus tours now. So. Owner Danny McCauley. They're really looking for a connection to Louise. The books have touched them. They've touched them personally. They've been healed by the books. And Penny has been extraordinarily open about her own life. Each month for her website, she writes what reads like an intimate letter to a close friend. It was here in 2014 that she disclosed her beloved husband, Michael, had been diagnosed with dementia. And then last fall, that he had died.
So many others have been down this road before Michael and me, that there's yeah. comfort in that. When fans show up for book signings, it's not just about the books. I love her books, but I love the individual. She's become part of the family. Mother and daughter? Yes. Louise Penny has never laid eyes on most of these people before, but they are not strangers. After all, she showed them the way to Three Pines, the sanctuary where she has now gone to find herself once more in her sadness. The writing became a harbor. It became solace. It became a world I could control. Oddly enough, all the decisions I had made 12 years ago about a place that I would like to live in and people I would choose as friends turned out to be my saving grace. I'm Jane Pauley. Please join us here again next Sunday morning.